Welcome to the second NPC episode of Pamela Werner's Murder. Never, never start with episode two of any tale. At least go back to the previous episode so you know what the hell is going on. Start at number one. It's easy. I believe in you. And true crime podcast peeps. Listener, beware. In homage to the Ether Ashley, small talk sucks. So let's hear some Ella Fitzgerald and I will meet you on the other side. January 7, 1937, Pamela Werner went to tea and ice skating with a friend from school. Both her friend's home and the skating rink lay inside the walled legation district of Peking, China. Pamela was due home for supper at 7.30, so at 7 o'clock, she left her friends at the skating rink and headed home on her bicycle, outside the walls, about a mile or more into the city of Peking. It was dark and cold. Pamela had a flashlight, a beret on her head, and her skate slung over her shoulder. From Midnight in Peking, quote, At three o'clock the afternoon before, Pamela's father had headed out for one of his walks across the city. He loved to stretch his legs after a morning spent on historical research or his routine correspondence. His daughter was sitting at a desk by a window writing letters. She told him she was going out shortly to meet an old school friend. They were going to tea together and then going ice skating. She would be back home by 7.30 and would have dinner with her father as usual. Werner had returned from his walk before dark and finished some scholarly work. At 7.30, Pamela hadn't returned, but for a while, he didn't worry. She was with friends she knew in Peking, and anyway, the skating rink was barely a mile away, in the safety of the legation quarter. But when she still wasn't back an hour later, he started to fret. Why had she not telephoned to say she would be late? By 9 o'clock, Werner was becoming seriously concerned and then infuriated with Pamela for not calling to let him know where she was. At 10 o'clock, Werner would pace his study no longer. He wrapped himself up in his thick gabardine coat, grabbed a kerosene-fueled storm lantern to light his way in the pitch-black night, and headed out to look for her. Peking was a city that retired early. In winter, the streets of the Tartar City were virtually deserted by 9. Outside the legation quarter, streetlights were infrequent, motorized taxis and rickshaws rare. Only the hardiest and most financially needy of the pullers were willing to ferry the night owls home from the bars and nightclubs, and the dens of the Badlands. At 72, Werner was in good health for his age and prided himself on his robust constitution. He walked briskly to the legation quarter, whose wide streets he knew well, found the house he was looking for, and banged on the door. Pamela's friend had returned home around 8 o'clock. He learned from the girl's parents, who then tried to reassure him. Pamela must have bumped into an old acquaintance, got chatting, and forgotten the time. He should just return home, and she'd surely be there waiting. 
sorry for the trouble she'd caused. Warner did go home, but Pamela wasn't there, nor had she telephoned. The cook, the ama, and the number one boy were all waiting up, anxious themselves now. Warner set the cook off to the skating rink, but it was closed, swathed in darkness for the night. The cook went back to Armor Factory Alley to tell Warner, who headed out to search again, this time taking an electric torch. Around 3 a.m., he stopped at the office of Commissioner Thomas, an old acquaintance, but the bureaucrat was off duty and home asleep. Warner left him a note saying that Pamela hadn't returned home, that he was worried and he had gone looking for her. Then he continued to tramp the streets of Peking, miles he walked in the dark, often on difficult pavements. Finally, Warner returned home, seeking news and needing rest. As dawn broke, bringing the city slowly back to life on another cold January day, Warner left Armor Factory Alley once more. He was distraught by now, wandering helplessly through eastern Peking again. He found himself back at the edge of the legation quarter, following the ancient Tartar Wall towards the looming 50-foot walls of the Fox Tower. As he neared the tower, thinking to skirt the railway arch where the train line began at its base and headed to the quarter to find Commissioner Thomas, he saw a crowd gathered. Werner rushed forward, propelled by instinct and a sense of doom. He saw Colonel Hahn, whom he knew by reputation, and Commissioner Thomas and the other policemen and photographers, all of them gathered around the corpse, and he only needed to see the fair hair and clothing to know it was his daughter. Commissioner Thomas and his legation quarter policemen had already arrived. Corporal Cow removed the straw matting used to keep the body from prying eyes, and Han and Thomas bent down to examine it. The girl was lying by the ditch, with her head to the west and her feet to the east, partially clothed in a tartan skirt and a bloodied woolen cardigan. Her shoes, into one of which a handkerchief had been stuffed, were lying some distance away. Han pulled the skirt down to cover the girl's bare thighs. It was hard to tell from the features of her brutally stabbed and beaten face whether she was foreign or Chinese. It was the fair hair and white skin that identified her race. The two men lifted the body slightly and Thomas pulled out a silk chemise from where it had been shoved beneath her. They could see that the girl had been cut and slashed everywhere. The knife cuts were deep and Han and Thomas wondered whether some of the other marks were from Huang Wu tearing at the flesh during the night. Colonel Han opened the cardigan and removed a piece of a woven cotton Artex blouse to examine the cuts on the chest. As he did, both he and Thomas jumped to their feet in shock. The entire sternum of the corpse had been cut open and all the ribs broken, exposing the interior body cavity. The smell it gave off was strong, but the corpse was strangely bloodless. Nor was there blood on the ground, which was hard from the night's frost. The blood had to have drained away somewhere. Both men had seen plenty of dead and mutilated bodies before. Both had seen action in various wars. Han with the warlords of northern China and Thomas as a young student interpreter with the British legation during the boxer's murderous siege in 1900. But now they looked at each other with realization too horrible to utter. Pamela's heart was missing. It had been ripped out through her broken ribcage. Han replaced the cotton material, covered the body again with a straw matting, and ordered his men to move the crowd further back. This was not a sight for the public. Next, Han removed the expensive wristwatch, platinum with diamond settings. So this wasn't just another poor white Russian, but who was she? There were no other belongings, but lying a short distance from the body, the men found a blood-splattered membership card for the French club ice skating rink. Han had it photographed before picking it up and slipping it into the manila envelope to enter as evidence. Just then, an elderly white man pushed his way through the crowd. He was wearing dark glasses, which he pulled off as he elbowed his way to the front. A crazed look came over his face, and he screamed a single word, Pamela! 
Then he put his hand to his mouth and cried out as if in pain before collapsing in a heap on the ground. End quote. Okay, before I unpack any of that, there are two things I need to address. The first is a reminder of both Pamela and Warner's personalities. Pamela and Warner are moneyed, though it's not insane riches. And Pamela is gentrified and believes she's in charge. Werner either is very set in the way things should be done, up to and including corporal punishment for the least transgression, or he's riding the cuckoo train. No, that's not a professional diagnosis, but there is nowhere near enough information to conclude anything more than those two options. I have a few suspicions, and I would love to dig into his remainders to try to get a better picture of his mind, but that's not going to happen anytime soon. And that brings us to the second thing, which is a mostly new bit of information. Pamela's story is currently available through two books, Midnight in Peking by Paul French, which I have quoted in the previous episode and at the beginning of this episode, and Death in Peking by Graham Shepard. Paul French is a journalist who has lived in China, Peking specifically, and in the middle of researching something else entirely, he stumbled upon the archived letters of Edward Werner. He became intrigued and ended up writing Midnight in Peking based mostly off of those letters. Not too long after French publishes, a former policeman in the UK, Graham Shepard, picks up French's book and decides that French's conclusions just don't make any sense. He decides to do some research and write his own book on the subject, giving his own version of what he thought happened. Both books have obvious bias. Shepard's from the lens of, this is police procedure and the police would absolutely have done things this way, and French's from the perspective of a man who had been too long in a dark, dusty room reading the rantings of Edward Werner. Graham's book is too focused on proving Werner's, and thus French's, suspects, not guilty, to the detriment of victimology and the events leading up to that night. It also focuses too little on the history and culture of China in 1937, and is infamous, in my mind, for saying things like, quote, Pamela's suggestive diary entry and her visit to his home on the day before her death would have undoubtedly attracted close scrutiny by the police. It is therefore inconceivable that they did not look closely into the matter. End quote. Inconceivable? Graham? Inconceivable? I just can't. French's book focuses more on the people and the place involved, without embroiling the story in the culture though I do have to mention that the culture he did include made some reviewers leave scathing one-stars, so I can see why he didn't dwell. In any event, both of these books are problematic, and I would rather have the primary sources, most of which are in the UK archives, but for now, it is what it is. Anywho, if Pamela's friends could be believed, Pamela left the skating rink about 7pm to get her bicycle and head for home. The streets would have been clearing out at that point, so she shouldn't have had too much in her way between the legation district and her house, a mile-ish. She did not arrive. As an aside, I would like to note that maps have a key and a measurement conversion for a reason. Including a map without this feature renders your map not completely useless, but definitely crippled. I'm looking at you, Mr. Shepard. From this point in the story, things go from the probable to pure speculation. Both French and Shepard have gone over several suspects, neither agreeing on, well, any of them. In French's defense, what he has written is a good first effort in the research of a topic, although his citations need some work. 
It's the kind of book for which everyone would be waiting for the sequel, with a more refined hypothesis and errata from the first book given in the index. Not that there is any more information on Pamela's death to put in a sequel, but I hope you see my point. Shepard's book is a solid C for effort, but he got so lost in proving French wrong that he lost sight of the fact that this was about Pamela and Pamela's horrendous murder. She's almost not even a character in a book about her own death. So, I will give you what I can on the suspects using info from both French and Shepard, and then I will go into some alternative perpetrators and solutions that have really not been considered. Back to the case. Peking sends in Colonel Han Shiching, and the Legation Administration sends Commissioner Thomas to the scene. Because the victim is an Englishwoman, Thomas insists that Han accept help from a member of the British forces. Han is not thrilled to be babysat, but he understands the desire of the British Foreign Office to have their hand in. Detective Chief Inspector Richard Dennis is called to Peking. Dennis had trained with Scotland Yard and was currently attached to the office in Tianjin. French has Han actually requesting Dennis based on his reputation. Shepard intimates that the British Foreign Office just sends Dennis, and Han hates it. Now, this next part will do nothing to further Pamela's story, but it does give you an idea of the atmosphere she lived in, and I love French's description of the two men, Han and Dennis, meeting at the train station. Quote, Han expected the train to be late. The journey from Tianjin to Peking normally took two hours, but lately had become dangerous, with bandits and saboteurs and roaming Japanese troops. The train was only slightly late, as it turned out. Han shook himself to get his blood moving against the chill. It wouldn't do to shiver in front of a Scotland Yard man. To arrive in Peking, Han knew, was to be awed somewhat. The train, known as the International, came into the station under the walls of Old Peking, virtually alongside the towering Qianmen Gate. Qianmen, the tallest and most southerly of the city's ancient gateways, marked the entrance to the inner part of Peking, the old imperial city. Occasionally, camel trains setting out from Mongolia and the old tea trade routes and the Silk Road still wandered past it. When Dennis's train pulled into the Watergate platform and disgorged its passengers, Han realized he had no idea what DCI Dennis looked like apart from foreign. He was one among many. Most of the passengers appeared to be foreigners, at least in the first-class carriages at the front of the train. Then he saw him. He would have known the man was a policeman, regardless of race or nationality. It was Dennis's bearing that Han recognized, erect, purposeful, exuding authority, even in civilian clothes. A dark worsted double-breasted suit, starched white collar, black tie, and coat. A ubiquitous fedora. Shoes so polished you could almost see your face in them. It helped that Dennis was tall, a good few inches taller than anyone around him, Chinese or foreign. At six feet himself, Han was tall by Chinese standards, but on catching sight of Dennis, he pushed his shoulders back involuntarily. The DCI, familiar with the uniform of the Peking police, strode towards Han, and the two men appraised each other. Han was powerfully built, with close-cropped hair, angular cheekbones, and a longer chin and sharper, more highly-bridged nose than many Chinese. Dennis, while taller than Han, was somewhat gangly beneath his winter coat, but he had enough brawn to deal with anyone troublesome. He had slightly outsized features, a thick brow, long nose, large hands, large ears, everything about him stamped him as a man of authority. DCI Dennis? Colonel Han. I have a car, shall we? Indeed. 
They walked through the ticket barrier where the railway functionary was smart enough to know when not to demand a man's ticket, and strode out under the archway at the entrance, across to a parking area occupied by a few cars and a host of rickshaws. Dennis had only a small suitcase. Han's driver, a young constable, jumped out of the police Chevrolet and opened the back door for the men. To your hotel, Han asked. Straight to work, I think. End quote. The imagery is really good, isn't it? Two serious, straight-laced men going to get the job done. Oh, also, never book me on the train to Peking. So these guys set to work, and it doesn't take them long to bring some things into the light. Dennis had underlings head off to Warner's house to speak with him and to gather any evidence they could. Pamela's room is relatively bare. In fact, the whole house is. They do gather her diary, which I would love to have my hands on. They find out that Warner was in the process of taking Pamela and moving to England. With this bombshell, Dennis does little more than raise an eyebrow. He seems curious, but more peeved that no one told him beforehand. French and Shepard differ on where Pamela was in her schooling. French says that Pamela still needed to finish her course at Tianjin Grammar. Warner is taking her to England to finish because Pamela doesn't want to go back. Now, Shepard says that she'd actually taken her final exam with honors and had come home, Peking, for good. He does quote Warner at the inquest, speaking about his recent plans to return to England once the research on his current book was complete. Knowing Werner, I have a hard time believing that this would be a full-time return. Even if he was taking Pamela to England, my belief, based on his personality, is that he would dump her with relatives and then go right back to China. Both French and Shepard disagree at how long Pamela had been in Tianjin Grammar School. Graham says a full five at one point in the book, but also quotes a contemporary magazine article which said only two years. French also says it's been only two. The police discover that Pamela has a boyfriend, and they discover more boys who were friends or possibly suitors. It's really unclear. The boyfriend was named Michael Misha Horjelski. Horjelski was a sports star at the grammar school. He was a few years younger than Pamela, but they were both in the final year. There was also a boy living at the same boarding house in Tientsin where Pamela resided, Gilchrist Struthers. Step aside, Benedict Cumberbatch. I have found someone with a more posh name than you. Shepard says that Gilchrist had a thing for Pamela, but was it was unrequited. But then Shepard also says that Pamela was actually seeing Gilchrist, but she dumped him for her Jelski. The investigation is able to ascertain that Gilchrist was nowhere near Peking at the time of Pamela's death, and he's written off as a suspect, but put a pin in that. Okay, Horjelski. Michael Horjelski was a Polish Jew who went by Misha. Dark hair, mischievous smile, abs for miles. Pamela's relationship with him could not have been a long one, because according to Shepard's source, Pamela was still with Gilchrist when he, the source, left for school in Japan in the autumn of 1936. That would be September, maybe October. She dies in January, that's four months max, that she could have been officially seeing Misha. Although, reports from her school say that she and Misha were rarely apart. And now comes another crucial bit of information that both authors disagree on. Pamela is seen in a place of lodging procuring room rights. But which place? Referring to the inquest testimony, Shepard says, quote, Then an enigma. Chao Ziming, a 34-year-old secretary at the Chinese YMCA on Hatman Street, was called to give evidence. 
On January 6 or 7, at about 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon, he remembered a foreign girl calling alone at the desk and making an inquiry about a room. She took with her a copy of the hotel regulations, end quote. Shepard's information supposedly comes from Chinese newspapers reporting on the inquest. The one image he includes of these articles is in Chinese. He does not offer a translation, nor, by the way, does he indicate anywhere in his book who translated any of his quoted Chinese into English citations, at least that I could find, and I tried. Despite starting that whole paragraph about the YMCA with the words, then an enema, this whole circumstance is then, for the most part, dropped. If it were me, the enigma, Graham, you called it an enigma, would be something that I would undoubtedly check out. French says that Chao Ziming was not a secretary at the YMCA, but the concierge at the Hotel de Vagonlis, and that he did not actually speak to the girl who entered the hotel on the 7th of January. He only saw her come in and leave with a leaflet. The concierge desk was about 20 feet from the main reception. Chow could not remember who was at the front desk that day, and he would have to track that person down. This does not ever seem to happen, at least not by the police force. Later, PIs hired by Warner are said to have traced the clerk. The PIs bribe him for more information, but he refuses to go on record in fear of his life. More on Warner's investigation later. Why, you may ask, does any of this matter? Well, French says that Misha was planning to come to Peking to visit Pamela and meet her father. Shepard says that someone was probably coming to visit, and it may have been Misha. Like I said previously, French's citations leave a little bit to be desired. This particular speculation in his book gives no citation. My guess is that some of the lack of detailed sourcing is due to the publisher. Sometimes publishers, particularly with books that are aimed at a more popular readership, want fewer citations because the thought is that the regular Joe will not buy the book if it looks too scholarly. If Misha was going to spend a few days in Peking, it makes perfect sense for him to stay at a hotel, not at the Werner house. Werner was known to beat men he considered a suitor for Pamela. Would you stay at his home? I'm pretty sure Werner would not even offer. Otherwise, there is no reason for her to be checking us out. The main issue is whether it is the Vagonli or the YMCA. Granted, I can see her picking up info for both places just to give him options, but the two locations are very different types of lodging. L'Hotel de Vagonli was a chain of hotels which originally began its existence catering to train passengers, thus the French term for the sleeping car on a train. These hotels were known for luxury because train rides were not overly comfortable, and the creators of the hotels knew they would have a willing consumer base. The YMCA is, well, the Y. It's clean, but it's a hostel, where there are like 6 to 20 cots to a room. Determining which location she went to is important because Warner was a bit of a snob, particularly when it comes to the bigoted concept of the mixing of the races. I will spare you my diatribe about that concept. Regardless, Misha, a Polish Jew, would probably have had an easier time meeting Pamela's father if he were staying at a posh hotel than at the YMCA. Depending on the way they tailored his inter introduction to Werner, Misha could come off as a Russian, not Polish, and certainly not Jewish. Paul French says that the police verify that Misha was in Tianjin when Pamela was killed, and they drop that line of inquiry. 
Shepard says there's no way to know for certain since no case notes have survived, but there is no indication the police saw Misha as a suspect. In addition to Michael and Gilchrist, her father mentioned two suitors he thought may have had a hand in the murder. A Chinese student, Han Shuqing, and the Chinese-Portuguese man. Isn't that just Macanese? Anyway, the Macanese guy named John O'Brien. French says, quote, The police visited his college, but Han Shuqing was no longer enrolled there. He had gone back to his father's home in Mukden, the college authorities thought. A dead end. They also looked for John O'Brien, the young man who became obsessed with Pamela in Tianjin, and who was now thought to be in Peking. But again, they had no luck. It was another dead end. End quote. Oh well, dead end. Those guys couldn't have done it because we can't find them. What? Does this not bother you, Paul French? John O'Brien seems like a pseudonym to me, does it not? A Chinese-Portuguese man with the natural name of John O'Brien? Please. This is just the kind of thing that should have been hunted down. And let's rewind a bit back to Han Shuqing, a.k.a. the Chinese student or the Chinese school friend. Han showed up one day at Warner's front door to see Pamela and ends up with a broken nose, courtesy of Warner. Shepard posits that this would have happened while Pamela was at school in Peking, so two to five years before her death. He uses some of Warner's writings as evidence that it was the altercation with Han that made him ship her off to Tianjin. But French intimates that the incident was much nearer the murder. It makes more sense to connect Han with the murder if the broken nose happened over the Christmas holidays. But then, Werner seems to be the sort who would hold a grudge for quite some time, and he could have agitated Han if they'd come upon one another yet again, possibly making Han more aggressive towards Pamela. In both books, DCI Dennis comes to the conclusion that Han is the murderer, and Shepard agrees. In fact, Shepard includes the detail that Dennis, and therefore Shepard himself, believe that the killers are Pamela's old-school friends. Wait, what? Plural? Yes, dear listener, plural. Because, according to Shepard, among Warner's letters to the British ambassador in 1938, is Warner complaining about Dennis and his conviction that the killers are two of Pamela's Chinese school friends, one from Mukden, this would be Han Shuqing, and one from Honan, unnamed. Chinese? Is the second man O'Brien? Or is it Gilchrist? Because 30 pages previous to this assertion, Shepard says the following about Gilchrist Struthers' alibi for when Pamela was killed. Quote, there does exist at least one small element of doubt. Intriguingly, on January 12th, five days after the murder, the society page of the Peeping Chronicle mentioned Mr. and Mrs. R.G. Struthers, Gilchrist's uncle and aunt, as returning home to Huihui in Honan province, having stayed in Peking for a short visit on business. Gilchrist's uncle was another respectable missionary doctor. There was no mention in the column of any other family members. The Struthers' visit was probably a coincidence, but it is the sort of thing the police should have examined closely if they were aware of the relationship. End quote. Here's the thing. We will get to the rest of the suspects, Werner's convoluted investigation, and his conviction as to who killed Pamela and why. The important thing to note here is that Shepard gave a fairly detailed account of the lives of all the men Shepard thought Werner had insisted were the culprits. 
Shepard also gave such an account for DCI Dennis, Misha Horjelski, and for Han Chuching. But there are several people in French's book that make no appearance in Shepard's. O'Brien, Thomas Jack, and the Oparinas. And if you're going to write an opposing view of book A, you need to cover all the points in book A, even if that is just to say, I looked at this and that person and they actually played no part in this case. So there are just these holes in Shepard's investigation and no explanation for the existence of these holes. I am not amused, Graham. When I started doing the MPC episodes, I called them minisodes, and I really didn't expect them to take up more than a single episode. In my decision to tell Pamela's story, I was not surprised when the script started to be two pages. But guys, I'm not done. There's going to be at least one more episode. This is what happens when I don't write all the scripts at the same time. To those of you that wish I could keep the episode countdown, I apologize. Everyone else, settle in, because we still got a little ways to go. If you like what you've heard today, please like the podcast. Give it a rating. Give it a review on whatever app you're using. Tell your friends. And I'm linking the Patreon in the show notes. Drop in, subscribe, and say hi, or just say hi. No trolls, but case suggestions and constructive criticism are approved. I will leave you with some Billie Holiday, and I'll talk at you next time on It's All Relative. Mm-hmm.